0: all the girls are complicated everyone
1: episode 87 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer and with me today we have regular panelist Katie Grubbs and guest panelist Isabel Ayer. Hi Katie and Isabel. Hey. Uh, So let's, before we get started talking about today's topic, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Katie, you go first.
0: Hi, I'm Katie Grubbs, and I live in Houston, Texas, um, with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist podcast, and are uh, now four children. I think I haven't been on since I had my fourth baby. Maybe I have. Um, and I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. And um, at the moment, I'm teaching entirely online and also building online courses. And, um, and that's been a great experience. So uh, that's kind of what's happening in our life right now.
1: Thanks, Katie. Uh, I'm going to break format and go second so that our guest can have a little more time to introduce herself. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, I am also married to a member of the Christian Humanist podcast, Michael Farmer. We live in Minnesota with our two cats, Smirjikov and Dorothy Parker, and I work in audience development at Public Radio International in Minneapolis. And what's going on with me? Uh, My company just announced a merger with another public radio company, so there's been a lot of, like, press releases and proofreading things and making sure that the fans aren't angry about the press releases. Um, So that's pretty boring. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And I will switch to more interesting things and let Isabel introduce herself. Tell us about yourself, Isabel.
2: Uh, thanks, Victoria. Uh, my name is Isabel Eyre. I'm from Seattle, Washington, originally, which is where I grew up. Um, I I guess now, three and a half years ago, after having worked in a rather um, boring day job and in a reevaluation of my life, decided to go back to school for film. So I went to film school. So I packed up my life and moved to Connecticut, drove my car to Connecticut I got my master's in film and television production at Sacred Heart University, where I worked for a year uh, after I graduated uh, as a production coordinator, and uh, I got my degree with a, it was a producing concentrate, so I'm a screenwriter and producer, and about a year ago, I decided to move back to the West Coast to pursue film in Los Angeles, which I didn't end up doing until, I didn't end up getting to LA until January of this year which is where I live now in Los Angeles um, and have since the end of January. And I've been freelancing, trying to make it in the movie business. Um, Right now I'm just working. I just started, actually just started a new day job working at a film school, which is kind of similar to my old job. Um, But yeah, basically I came out here to, uh, to change the face of filmmaking through evangelization, uh, bring some Christian values to filmmaking sort of not really tell good stories really is actually what I wanted to do so yeah that's that's my story I am a
1: sort of underemployed filmmaker changing the face of filmmaking with evangelism it's good to have modest goals yeah exactly yeah
2: I'm gonna completely change the culture that's that's the goal here or die trying more likely
1: I have seen your thesis film and it is very good I enjoyed it very much Oh, thank you. So we should uh, tell the listeners what we're talking about today. Today's episode is the result of a listener request. So shout out to listener Kay, who suggested that we cover the results of a survey published in January on Catholic women and their attitudes towards Uh, the faith, their place in it, um, its relationship with gender, those kinds of things. Uh, I'm going to just read a bit from the email that she sent us. She says... I know that your podcast doesn't often touch on Roman Catholic-specific topics, but I'd be fascinated to hear an analysis or reaction to the recent survey of U.S. Catholic women. Then she notes that there have been responses from other places, several podcasts, and America Magazine will cover the America Magazine response. Uh, She goes on to say... uh, Perhaps the strongest point of contention is that only 10% of the women surveyed claim to have experienced sexism in the Catholic Church, so that's one thing she would like us to discuss. So the first thing we're going to do is that Katie is going to tell us a little bit about um, how the survey is organized, who put it together, and um, what it's trying to do. So Katie, can you break that down for us?
0: Sure. Sure. Um, So first, I just want to say a few words about where the survey is coming from. And this is coming from CARA, or the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate, which is at Georgetown. Um, And their kind of tagline, I guess, that you might see like on their website is placing social science research at the service of the Catholic Church since 1964. So um, the kind of whole purpose behind CARA is to be using research methods to serve the church in various ways. And this, this happens in all different kinds of places so that they, um, they can serve um, dioceses, parishes, religious communities, um, any part of the church that needs uh, has a need for research, um, they can be of help. Um, and just a few kind of uh, blurbs um, of mission, things the way they describe themselves, um, to increase the church's self-understanding, to serve the applied research needs of church decision-makers, to advance scholarly research on religion, particularly Catholicism. And um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about— oh, and and also they have various publications, the CAR Report, Catholic Ministry Formation Directory. There's a research archive, special reports, books, and other publications, all kinds of different resources that they're putting out for the church and about the church. Um, and I wanted to read one little bit that I thought was interesting. Um, one of the things that they make a point of saying is that their long-standing policy is quote, to let research findings stand on their own and never take an advocacy position or go into areas outside its social science competence, which I thought was very interesting. And um, part of that could be coming from the fact that all of their um, researchers have advanced degrees in various academic disciplines. So, um, this is definitely a situation where you have, and and and, and it's based in Georgetown, so that's not surprising. Um, but you know, and I looked at, down the list of the different researchers, and it's it's widely varying um, degrees and pastoral degrees and pastoral experience. Um, there are sociologists, people with business degrees, political scientists, uh, philanthropic studies degrees, and also degrees in education. So all these different relevant areas that you might find. Um, needful for researching the church those are all kind of coming into play and so that is where this report is coming from is uh, from Cara and then as to how it's organized when I first looked at it it was a little intimidating because it's like a 96 page report But when the number of charts are taken into consideration, it's actually not at all intimidating. So anyone who's interested in this, I would say don't hesitate to kind of check out the full report. Um, But there's also, um, like we're going to talk about later, you know, articles that kind of summarize some of the salient findings. Um, The actual report itself was written by uh, researchers Mark M. Gray and Mary L. Gauthier. And the way it's broken down is into four different subsections. So the first whole section is on religious belief, religious practice, and parish life. And that gets into lots of different things like, you know, how many of respondents um, believe in God all the time with no doubts versus how many have doubts or um, what different aspects of church ministry they have been involved in um, and things of that nature. And uh, also um, what is uh, what's kind of that that is one of the areas where they talk about like teaching church teachings and what influences um, the way that they live their lives I think that was in that section The second section is called Women in the Church And that section is where they're talking about Things like sexism Have you experienced sexism But also things like um, What are questions like What are your Who are the role models Or the, the 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 ideas that have shaped How you view yourself As a Catholic woman So there's a lot of self-conception there uh, Third section is political and social issues Which is uh, is very interesting particularly in light of the time so this this uh survey was done last august august 2017 about a year ago and so there there was a lot in there about religious and uh, political affiliations and how religion is affecting the ways that these women vote or not a lot of them said not that was interesting and then the last section is um for all the math geeks if we have any who listen to our podcast is subgroup comparisons. And that's an entire section of charts where they break down all different kinds of questions and findings by different metrics, things like gender or not gender um, things like generation is what I meant to say Uh, the generation of the women, ethnicity and race um, weekly mass attendance, like different questions broken down by what people said based on how often they go to mass Um, just things like that. And there's also a really interesting um, at the very bottom, a really interesting chart where they compared certain kind of broad results of this survey with with surveys done of male Catholics. That was also very interesting to me. And then there's also a section at the end where they kind of summarize all the different findings into a kind of portrait of what they call the quote average Catholic woman by generation. And that was fascinating where they kind of give a name and a description of the life of, a typical woman of four different generations that they covered in the study, based on all the statistics they gathered about these women, it was fascinating. That um, was
1: definitely uh, the most interesting part of the results uh, to me, and I know um, we'll we'll get into that deeper in in a little bit.
0: Yeah, and I think I mean that's that's kind of that was kind of the overview. Is there anything else you wanted me to to kind of cover, or do you feel like we can move to the next bit?
1: Uh, no, I feel like that's good. And uh, I'll go ahead and say one of the reasons that I was interested in the um, portraits at the end is one of the things that I am responsible for in my day job uh, is survey design. So I've I've taken um, some classes, some statistic classes, and also a um, social science research and survey design certification from the University of Michigan. Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what makes a good survey, how to word things, how to sample populations of people. So um, while I was reading this uh, survey, I didn't just have my kind of person of faith hat on. I also had um, a a bit of a professional uh, survey designer hat on as well. So I I wanted to take a second and talk about how this survey is put together and uh in my semi professional sort of play one on TV uh opinion what is good and not so great about the design here. So this survey is based on a probability sample with a standard confidence interval and also a standard margin of error. What does that mean? A probability sample is a kind of stratified random sample, which means uh, the people chosen for the survey are grouped in such a way that every member of the sample population has an equal chance of being selected. For example, if you had a total population of 100 people, each person would have a one out of 100 uh, chance of being chosen, equal odds. Um, And they're anonymous. The people selecting um, the sample don't know who they are um, by name or characteristic. They're just given selection numbers. And these people were selected from um, a group of people, a larger group of people, who had already agreed to participate in uh, CARA surveys. So there's, uh, you know, informed consent and and all that good stuff uh, happening. Um, As I said, standard confidence interval and margin of error, all of that is responsible um, survey administration, as is the fact that because this was an online survey, um, internet access and capability was given to people selected who didn't have it already, Um, also responsible practice. So, really good so far. Where it starts to get a little bit dicey for me is the overall sample size. So it gives us, uh, at the beginning of the survey, the full uh, female of age Catholic population and then gives us the comparative sample size. Uh, And the comparative sample is 0.005% of the eligible population. That's a pretty small sample. My other, I guess I have two other problems, my two other possible problems are um, there are a number of Likert scale questions. Um, You've seen these questions in surveys before. This sort of um, extremely agree, agree, neutral, disagree, extremely disagree kind of five point scale questions. There are a number of those questions in a row. Um, Best practices say The more you have of those in a row, the more people are going to uh, be likely to what's called Satisfice, which is kind of get bored answering the same kind of question and just start defaulting to the middle answer. Um, So that might be a problem. And that problem is also compounded by the fact that a lot of these questions are really sensitive. Um, They're questions that people might feel bad about answering in a way that they perceive wrong. um, In terms of how happy are you to be Catholic? How well represented do you feel by the church? Um, There could be some pressure to answer these questions in a certain way that isn't exactly how a person feels Um, Last possible gripe I have that we'll get into um, a bit more later is it's unclear how certain central terms to the survey were defined to the respondents. Um, Sexism being one, they don't seem to offer a definition of what that is. So respondents could very well go into the survey thinking that it means uh, different things than other respondents. So those are my sort of semi-professional opinions um, about how this was organized. I think it's mostly responsible, but I do think there's some kind of fuzzy areas here. Um, what do you guys think about the survey organization or uh, or design? How did it feel to you?
2: Oh, man. Um, I mean, reading the report was just tedious Uh, like that's the best word I can use to describe it I mean just I don't know like there was a part of me this is my attitude towards and I just I just actually we I just was in like a parish ministry meeting where one of these surveys like we a similar type of whatever broad survey of like the how the parish is doing had been done the previous year and we were looking at The numbers I guess this is this is sort of tangential to your question but I just look at the number look at the data and I'm like why did we spend all this money doing this survey when I could have anecdotally told you all this information like nothing in it surprised me but I guess that's I don't know I guess that's a different gripe I don't know
0: what do you guys think I didn't really I didn't have too much of a beef with the way it was constructed but I mean I'm like Unlike you, Victoria, I don't. I don't really have any specialized knowledge as to what makes a good survey. I do remember thinking when I read the total number included that it it did sound like a pretty small sample size to me. Um, though I did like the way that they seemed to make sure to pick women of a really wide age range, so that you almost had kind of four different quote generations represented. I thought that was good, but I do think it could have been better if it had had if if there had been more people. And I mean, you know, as I guess maybe. And I don't know if this was the purpose, but reading it as a Protestant, it was very interesting and illuminating to me, but that's because I don't really have any of that anecdotal stuff like, you know, like you have, Isabel. So I thought it was, I thought it was kind of interesting, but I could see where for someone who's in the, you know, who's, who's very involved with the church, it might not be a surprise.
2: Yeah. I mean, so I guess I didn't really get into any of my background and with American Catholics, you really can't assume, I mean, there's such a, I would say this is a, a difference in Catholic and Protestant culture. I mean, not that there isn't a wide view of opinions, both political, theological, but you really, you can get any type of person who identifies as Catholic as evidenced by the survey, by the data. So I guess a little bit about myself and my background, where I'm coming from. Um, Yes, let's do that. Yes. Yeah. I just, yeah. Uh, So I was raised Catholic um, my father was Catholic. My mother converted when she married him, um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, like it wasn't, I don't know, I guess we, I don't have time to get into all of that here. We don't, that could take all day, but, um, so I was raised Catholic in Seattle. So the Pacific Northwest is the part of the United States that I believe has the fewest churches per capita. So it's what we call the nun zone, not N-U-N-N-O-N-E. So I would say like, I grew up in a largely secular culture. Um, We were, I did go to Catholic school, K through eight, and then public high school. We lived on the same block as the church. We were Catholics. We, but I would describe my upbringing as uh, pretty sort of, not middling exactly. I mean, probably stronger practicing than a lot of American Catholics, but I don't particularly think my catechesis was very good. I didn't understand basic teachings of the Catholic church essentially until after college, which I kind of consider myself, I never left, but I sort of consider myself a revert in some ways because essentially I had kind of existential crisis, sort of existential drift in my college years uh, and basically had a decision right after college that I needed to, either I believed this and I needed to do it all the way, or it was meaningless and I needed to drop the whole thing. So um, I kind of, I would say it was sort of more like cultural Catholic cafeteria Catholic for those. I assume most people are probably familiar with that term, but
0: are you? I am. That's not one I've heard before.
2: Oh, cafeteria
0: Catholic? No, no. I okay. but I miss I mean it's it's the same as a cultural Catholic, is that uh, cafe-
2: so cafeteria Catholic means you are picking and choosing which teachings you like and which ones you don't.
0: Oh, that makes perfect sense. Okay. Yeah. Um so uh yeah. So or
2: just aren't thinking I mean, I would say for me it wasn't even that it wasn't even that, that would be more, like I would have more intellectual respect for teenage Isabel if that was what she was doing, but really I just wasn't thinking too hard about it. Um, So basically, yeah. So after college, I essentially had kind of, it had been working on me a while, but I sort of had, I would consider it to be like a radical conversion and reversion. Um, So through, probably through, through the grace of baptism and the sacraments um, and God obviously uh, so then I became ex- incredibly involved with young adult ministry at my parish in Seattle because I moved back home after college. Um, and it was through that community that I really would say I became a, st- a strong and Orthodox I wouldn't say conservative Catholic I don't know like conservative and liberal or sort of terms but I would say Orthodox with a small O Orthodox Roman Catholic so um, yeah I mean we kind of, so I'm kind of, and I've been involved with Catholic ministry in the church, um, for the last seven or eight years, um, in several different States. Um, and I'm trying to even remember how I got on this. So I guess like, so yeah, I would, you know, if you're, if it's libs, libs and trads would be like the pejorative term, traditionalists versus liberals. I'm definitely more traddy. That's what we would, that's what, that's the insider baseball term. I'm both liturgically and sort of in terms of like what we probably would consider the political in air quotes questions. So that's, that's where I'm at.
1: Thanks for sharing that with us. And I think, um, I think that your journey is something that a lot of believers, our age can relate to. Um, I know you're, a couple of years younger than, than I am, but we're around the same age, uh, in terms of you're raised in this faith that sort of belongs to your parents or your community or the people around you and belongs to you sort of by association or, or in a nebulous way. And it takes, um, leaving that community and growing up a little bit to kind of figure out where you fit, figure out your commitment. Like you said, um, you know, if, if this means if this is serious and important, then I need to commit to it. If it's not, then it's not. Um I, I really relate to that um that kind of decision making and, and getting to that place where you have to decide what your faith looks like for you um and not for other people. So I appreciate you sharing that.
2: Yeah, in the I don't know if this is true. I think the p- sort of Protestant cultural experience is different, but I mean, in the Catholic Church, and I don't really see this in the data for this survey, which was, I mean, I guess I wasn't terribly surprised, but I see a real generational gap in sort of like, so. but I don't necessarily see it as a gender gap. So there's a big difference between millennial Catholics versus baby boomer Catholics. And that's where most of the conflict over questions of liturgy, questions of sort of church teachings. Uh, That's where I see it, see the the big difference. It's kind of like the post-Vatican II. People who came up in the immediate aftermath of the Second Vatican Council have a perspective that's very much formed by that. And also everything that was parallel to that. So the sexual revolution and everything going on. So that's their experience. And then but the before you move on,
1: um, yeah. just for our, our listeners who have no clue, um, I, I know a little bit, but I know there are people listening who probably don't. Can you give us the, like, explain it to us like we're five definition of what Vatican II is? Okay,
2: so, oh man, I should have anticipated this. Um, so uh, the Second Vatican Council was a pontifical council. I swear I'm not pulling up the Wikipedia page right now. Um, so was that? Yeah, it was a no judgment if you do. Yeah. Uh, well, I am. So, okay. So the Second Vatican Council um, was who was it called by Paul? This it was formally opened uh, under Pope John Paul the Twenty Third. I mean, essentially. Uh, there in the United States, what the Second Count- Vatican Council led to the big change was the liturgy. So this is when, um, prior to this, uh, the Mass was all said in Latin around the world, and this is when there was the change to uh, the widespread use of vernacular languages in in the Mass around the world. So that's where um, that's you know when we started saying mass in English. Um, so yeah. So like the liturgicals, there was liturgical updates. And then this is kind of like when we got like women religious, no longer wearing habits, for example, and kind of a, a, an emphasis on the laity over a, as like the laity involvement in mass was a big part of the second Vatican council is emphasizing like, lay people need to participate more in in all aspects of parish life.
1: So my understanding of um, both kind of the, the main thrust of the Second Vatican Council and also the main thrust of objections to it where objections lie is um, that it is seen for good or for ill as a... A sort of religious populism that gives, in some cases, too much power to the laity, such that um, devotion to the church is diluted because there's now too much focus on the self. And this happens um, in terms of the way religion is daily carried out in a daily manner and also in terms of changing um, socio-sexual norms, that there's some sense that the Second Vatican Council is kind of bending to a certain degree to political changes that are happening in other parts of the country. Is that completely off base?
2: No, I would say that's a pretty accurate summary of the perception. I mean, it's kind of like, there's an idea among people who are really, really traditionalists that, I mean, there's a whole splinter sect of the Catholic Church uh, called the Sedevacontists, who essentially believe that the chair of St. Peter is empty because of the Second Vatican. Like, they don't, they, they think it's so modern that it's not even, they're, they think they're more Catholic than the Pope, essentially. So there's an, it's an anti, the people who have a problem with Vatican II, broadly speaking, are sort of feel like it's modernist in
1: a negative way. Okay. So thanks for laying some of that out for us. Um, You alluded to the fact that you don't feel terribly represented by um, who, what what this survey says Catholic women are.
2: Well, my biggest problem with the survey is the, essentially i mean my biggest problem with it is if you look at the the first chart the aside from weddings and funerals how often do you attend mass and over 50% of the people who answered this I mean, of the people who answered this survey uh, attend never or at christmas and easter i mean i'm assuming that's what the 27% who who attend a few times a year. So I don't know. I mean, not that that isn't represent. to be Catholic. You just have to be baptized in the Catholic church definitionally. So every woman who I assuming that they were all baptized Catholic, they are all Catholics. However, most of them are non-practicing fallen away Catholics. And as such, I'm just, I mean, I'm kind of not to be mean about it, but I'm kind of uninterested in their opinions. I mean, their opinions are no different from most secular peoples. I just there's nothing about nothing about that. The data surprises me of the people who know who don't attend who attend mass rarely or never. Um, their opinions were things I could have guessed.
1: Uh, Can you give a couple under- examples of those opinions?
2: Uh, should, okay, let me look at the Oh um, okay, so people who disagree with the church or who who left the church um, because they disagree with the social issues, the church's teachings on various things, you know, whatever, I guess like same sex marriage and abortion and birth control. Um, Somebody, one of the people, one of the actual things said women's rights, which I didn't know what that was specifically alluding to because that's vague. But so yeah, I don't believe, I don't agree with the churches, the Catholic Church's teachings on X, Y, Z thing. So I left. I mean, that's that's just like I don't think there's anything specific to women about that. I think that's a lot of the reason why men leave too, because the Catholic Church's teachings don't jive with certain aspects of modern culture that are widely accepted. So um, I'm just much more interested. I, I think that that skews the data like so wildly where it's, it's not like it's representative of Catholics who actually attend mass and who are strongly practicing, which is more interesting to me. I suppose I look at the, I look at this survey and I'm like, what is it? I don't see what it's accomplishing.
0: I see what you're saying, Isabel, because I I was, I was talking about the survey with my husband, and I kind of read out some of the percentages and stuff. Um, And, you know, like, about, like, how often people were attending or how involved they were. And he kind of said something like, wait, these people say that they're Catholic? Like, he was kind of confused. And I, I see what you're saying. You're right. I think it would be much more interesting to figure out or to, to get it some more data on specifically on the group who are – actively involved or you know or at least um, frequently being uh, a part of the church like I was shocked the, the statistic that was craziest to me was when the one that said that 67 percent of the women surveyed had never served really in any capacity in yeah. the, in their parish ministry that blew my mind because when I th- just thinking about how many jobs and, and, and ministry jobs and, and ministry roles that's a better word roles in um in our like in my church are done by women like and I'm thinking, what's happening guys? Like it was just very strange. And and on a
1: related fascinating note, um, in, in terms of the question, there was a question that was like, do you think your, um, your church or your parish gives women enough roles and enough things to do? Do you think they are, um, participating the way that they should? And shockingly, women who attended mass more regularly are more likely to say yes to that question and women who don't are more likely to say no because like, of course they are. That makes sense. If if you're not right, if you're not there, (laughs) you're not going to have a sense that women are being involved because you're not there. Like to me, that was just, uh, not to be disrespectful, but like that's a little bit ridiculous, isn't it?
2: It is. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, women are participating. The women who go to church, like women are involved in parish, parish ministries at every level. It's the men you can't get involved. Like women are running, <laughs> women are basically, I mean, running most of the ministries at your average American Catholic church, to be honest. So this idea that, yeah, but of course, if you don't go, then, you know, yeah, if you don't, don't go, nobody's going to ask you to do anything.
0: Well, I did, I I wondered when I, when I read that, I thought, hold on, like, and that made me look back again to see just how many people who were part of the sample were people who were not in any way meaningfully involved. And I thought, okay, then you can't, I, you can't look at that and go only 67% of women who were there all the time are actually volunteering to do any, anything. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. Honestly, I see the biggest problem was just having so many people who. just go to church, essentially, I presume going like a few times a year is going to be your um, Easter, you know, what Easter, Christmas, Ash Wednesday, Catholics, so I would consider them to be nominal in practice, and so yeah, of course, that's going to completely skew all the data, I mean, I I have to ask you guys, would, if there was an evangelical survey, would over 50% of the people be people who just don't really go to church?
0: You know, know probably. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, there well, and- there would
1: be some C and E's, as we as I grew up calling them, Christmas and Easters, um yeah. that that would be uh that would be answering, but I mean I'm with you. I don't think I don't think that has the same weight. Um the, the uh metric that I was most interested in in terms of um some meaningful differences and some things that like you said didn't surprise me um was the generational metric can we uh can we maybe talk a bit about what this survey says about different generations of catholic women sure yeah so one thing that jumped out at me actually no i'm going to start with the stuff that didn't jump out at me um so i i started my audience development job in 2015, so there was a lot of projects at work about millennials and the upcoming election and how they were going to vote and how they felt about politics and how millennials are different from Gen Xers and baby boomers and that sort of thing. So I've, I've done a lot of reading um, data collected by people in older generations who think they understand who millennials are as people and mm-hmm. um, And part of this survey felt like that to me. Um, Just these kind of really general... um, Millennials are less trusting of authority. Millennials are less about organized religion. Like that sort of easy blanket statement. There was some of that here. But there were a couple of places that deviated from it. Um, Particularly there's one question that says... Um, millennial women are more likely to consider taking religious orders. Uh, they're still less likely than the two oldest generations, but they're more likely than the kind of um, immediately post-Vatican II sort of Gen X corresponding generation. And that was interesting to me because I think it reflects a turn I have seen um, in myself and in some of my friends, though we are not Catholic, um that we are drawn to liturgy and tradition and history and patterns um, that we didn't get from the churches that we um, that we grew up in. I was raised Southern Baptist. I'm now Presbyterian. Um, I have recently visited several. Um, more high church congregations, um, Anglo-Catholic and, and Anglican congregations, and the liturgy and the tradition is just really um, appealing to me because of the way it orders your life um, around religious principles and also because of the way it just connects you to, um, to the people that have come before. So I, I kind of get that uh, deviation of the standard millennial. What did you guys think about either that point or some of the other generational stuff in the
0: survey?
2: Um, Well, in terms of um, younger women being more likely to consider sort of religious life, I certainly have seen that. I mean, I know like the interesting thing about those numbers is um, the data suggests all of the more traditionalist orders have a bump in vocations and all of the more, I guess, you know, whatever, more like modern orders are all elderly women who are dying off and they have no young vocations. So essentially you're much more likely to see young nuns and religious sisters who are habited slash cloistered. Um, and then sort of like, I don't know, the, the more, again, for lack of a less, whatever of uh, uh, more progressive religious orders, so a lot of the ones that were created in the post Vatican II era, um, religious sisters who don't wear habits and have less traditional um, commitment to liturgy, etc, more tra- less traditional views, more like th- those orders are all dying off essentially. And so like for example, the Nashville Dominicans, very traditional order, I think their average the average age of a Nashville Dominican nun is like 32. So very wow. young, yeah. It's it's crazy, actually. I mean, it's great, but that's really so, interesting. Yeah, so we're seeing a way a bump in um, religious vocations, but it's almost all like more traditional orders. I mean, we see it with men too, like the um, the Fraternal Society of Saint Peter, which is the um, the fraternal priestly organization that does the Latin Mass, the old rite. They have like way higher vocations than diocesan priests. So you see a lot of young people who really actually see like prefer the old, who who really are drawn to the old rite and the traditional liturgy.
0: I thought it was really interesting too um, in those statistics that they said that that younger women were more likely to have considered um, considered that life, but also that um, that women with college degrees were twice as likely. Like it was like 15%, um, as opposed to like 8%. Um, and I wondered that I thought that was an interesting, an interesting kind of, um, contrast. And it it made me wonder, and I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I wonder what's behind that. You know, I didn't know if it was a situation where someone who'd spent a lot of time in serious study might be more likely to consider a contemplative life. I mean, do you, what do you think, Isabel? Do you have any thoughts about that? That actually, that was interesting. Um, to,
2: You know, that's kind of one of those things, I almost wonder, I sort of was like, I was thinking about that and wondering if it was maybe like a social class thing. Um, Mm, I don't want to say, yeah, I don't know if it's like, there's a privilege attached to the idea. I mean, in general, I think the church de-emphasizes sort of like monastic and religious life, or there's a cultural, there's not a cultural expectation of it. I don't think most Catholic parents, the average Catholic parent wants grandkids. And in my experience, it isn't all about, in, in this generation or whatever, baby boomers with their millennial kids, I don't see it like, we really want you to become a nun. Um, so I don't know. I, I really actually don't have any, that is interesting. I'll have to think about that. But you, your instincts about it maybe having to do with education and thinking about the contemplative life, that's, that's possible.
0: I also thought it was interesting too, the one other generational thing that caught my eye um, particularly is I thought it was interesting that the it was the, the very oldest, I think they said like born pre-1943 maybe, uh-huh. the very oldest um, ladies in the survey and the youngest, the millennial women were the ones that were most likely to have practiced natural family planning um, as a way of regulating family size, whereas the two generations in the middle were much less likely. And that was also interesting to me, but I think that maybe that's also to do with some of the things that you were talking about with the sexual revolution and like the pill and all kinds of things like that. I, I wondered if maybe, um, part of the reason the millennials were tracking more with the very oldest women in the city is in part just because they have more distance from all that, that kind of sexual revolution kind of time. Um, and, and some of it know. is
1: reactionary too, right? I mean, Oh, it's very I, reactionary. I, I know I'm indicting myself in saying this, but like some of it is, is definitely a reaction to the sort of overly free latchkey kid, Gen X, nobody is keeping up with me thing. Millennials, um, you know, all decided to be Tracy Flick in response to that. And, and some of it is uh, manifesting itself in uh, conserv- a return to conservatism.
2: Uh, I mean, I see it among, so my Catholic friends are all more, I mean, whatever, orthodox in practice, most of them are more, are more conservative in their practice than their parents. Um, all of my, yeah, basically all of my, all of my Catholic friend, married friends who are under the age of 45, all practice NFP. Um, I mean, that's just in that social circle, that's the expectation. Um, but Among uh, baby boomers, I mean, I I think that the number of Catholics, I think American Catholics, like 90% disagree with the church's teaching on birth control. So, you know, the average American Catholic agrees with the culture, not the church. But the ones who, you know, the ones who are really strongly practicing there, yeah, there's definitely a reactionary element to it.
1: All right, so we're starting to run a bit long, and I want to cover the um, America magazine breakdown of the survey as well. So before we do that, let's go around and do a really quick lightning round of one thing that we haven't mentioned yet about the survey that you want to make sure to mention. Katie, how about you go first?
0: Um, So um, I guess that just one other thing that I wanted to kind of throw in is that we referred at the beginning of the episode to this question of have you experienced sexism in the church? And, you know, like 90% said no or something like this. Um, but I was actually more interested in the 10% that said yes. And I kind of looked at the breakdown, but one of the things that I thought was interesting is it seemed like that, um, that a lot of the, uh, or not a lot, but um, a, good, a good portion of the allegations of sexism from the people who said yes actually seemed to me to be as much based on disagreements with church doctrine as we discussed before. Like, um, you know, people saying like, there's no women priests or, you know, um, being upset that they weren't allowed to fulfill certain roles that the church mandates must be filled by men. And it seemed in cases like that, I, it was one of these times also where I was thinking, OK, are, is this coming from people who were almost never around and so aren't super familiar with the the minutiae of the doctrine anyway? Or, um, and that was something that I noticed And um, one other, I know you said one thing, but one other really fast thing is there's one other thing that, um, listeners, if you actually look into the, um, study that they spend a good bit of time on is how the women felt about the idea of women being installed as permanent deacons in the church. Um, yes, I want to talk about that. Okay. Well, if we're going to talk about that, then, um, I'm not going to say anything more about that.
1: Can that be my thing? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Go for it. So the part of the survey that talks about women being ordained as permanent deacons was really interesting to me. Let me see if I can get to the right page. Um, 60% of respondents said that they were for women being ordained as permanent deacons, which seemed pretty high to me. Uh, I was kind of shocked by that, and uh a number of those respondents also are people who don't attend mass regularly so i i do think it's really interesting that it seems to me that these kind of unorthodox views come from people who are less practicing catholic and more culturally catholic and i i don't want to i don't want to oversimplify and say they are not involved with the community, so of course they have less orthodox opinions. Uh, but I, I do think there must be something connected to being something connected to that disconnection. The idea that their opinions are more different because they're less, uh, less involved, less. Um, regularly communicating with people who do hold orthodox beliefs, and I'm not saying that that's wrong or that they're not allowed to disagree, but I I do think that the the theology and the kind of cultural immersion seem to be connected here in a really interesting way.
0: You know, that was another area where the very youngest women and the very oldest women were more in agreement than the two generations in the middle, and that that that's was true. also interesting the, yeah, the very youngest and the very oldest women were the ones most likely to say either, no, I don't think women should be permanent deacons, or, um, I, I'm not sure I want to find out more, you know, a kind of a more reserved opinion. Like I'm reserving my opinion until I have all, you know, more information. The thing that was interesting to me, I was very surprised too, Victoria. And cause when I was reading what it means to be a permanent deacon, um, it sounds very much, I mean, like the things that a permanent deacon can do, um, It's way more than, you know, uh, a woman would be doing in any kind of conservative complementarian church of the evangelical Protestant stripe, like things like baptizing people or, you know, preaching from, you know, like things like that. So, yeah, I was kind of surprised by it, too, and I was kind of just kind of comparing across to the Protestant context because I think a lot of times Protestants maybe might get on, you know— some Protestants might get on their high horse thinking that, you know, oh, well, we're, you know, giving more honor to women and giving them more visible roles in serving than in the Catholic Church. And then, you know, but then you read this and you see that, you know, women in the Catholic Church would be fine with being women deacons and what all that entails. It was just very interesting.
1: Well, some of the qualitative responses say the opposite. Some of the qualitative responses say, I actually came back to Catholicism because— I went to more interdenominational or non-denominational Protestant churches and felt like the women were really, really oppressed. And so I wanted to be Catholic again. So I thought that was interesting, too.
0: Yeah, because I think that's a misconception on the part of Protestants. I should have said that 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 women are not that, that Protestants are treating women better than Catholics. I don't think that's true, but I think that's what some Protestants think.
1: All right, uh, Isabel your turn, what thing from this survey um, would you like to point out that we haven't talked about yet? We haven't talked about those uh, sort of snapshot people at the end. I think you maybe wanted to mention those. Oh, yeah.
2: So at the end of the survey, they created, I mean, I obviously, Victoria, you know a lot more about how one does this, but they essentially um, created these amalgam like this is an average person of each each generation um and like what like the basically whatever the average person is um and i actually thought this was probably i mean again it didn't surprise me but i thought maybe it would be helpful i'm kind of like in i'm sort of in the catholic like i'm very catholic online with a capital o so i'm like very involved with these sort of like inter-Catholic conversations about what are the problems with the church and liturgy and so you know a lot of this information is probably not surprising to me because I'm kind of in the weeds with that but the average Catholic is not thinking very critically about the culture of the church at all um so I thought maybe that these would be useful for people um who are I mean, if if a if somebody who's not really practicing or interested in the is reading this, they might find it interesting. But I did think the um, the millennial Catholic um, was just I just thought it was funny. I mean, it kind of represents the sort of contradictory nature of I think modern life that this person, the way that this person is laid out, which is probably it's, it, I relate to it because so much of my own life my kind of coming back to the church did come from a feeling of being sort of not rooted in anything real. Or, I mean, my thing is like the truth. So the average millennial Catholic woman, um, is like, it says that she, um, she, so she is engaged to be married 27 years old, Hispanic. Her fiance is Catholic. They already have one child together. So the presumption is that she had a child out of wedlock. I presume that's what that means, unless I'm misunderstanding the, the information.
0: No, I think um, that's true. It says they yeah, have a
1: child together and that they're
2: they not yet yeah, married. Together.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. The implication. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. So it says like living a life consistent. So living a life consistent with church teachings is much more important to her sense of being Catholic than among non-Hispanic white Catholic women of her age, because she is Alicia, the average millennial Catholic woman is Hispanic. And I just thought that's funny because she had a child out of wedlock, but apparently she's following church teachings is much more important to her than the average uh, white equivalent woman, which kind of indicates to you how like little following church teachings matters to most millennials. That's, that's kind of what struck me, which I think is that is true. The ones who are practicing feel really strongly about it, and then the vast majority of people who are baptized and went to Catholic school, and then are kind of go with their parents on Christmas and Easter, don't really care, or they have some kind of like cultural attachment to it, but not a strong doctrinal or dogmatic
1: attachment. Well, that seems to be true, right? She she seems to. um, I I guess I shouldn't put words in the fake audience personas mouth, Uh, but it seems to me that like she doesn't think that the sexual stuff necessarily falls under the umbrella of church teachings like it seems from the paragraph here that what church teachings means to her is praying fairly regularly and it says she tries to attend mass at least once a month but doesn't always make it um she prays a few times a week but is often doing so for the well being of her family. She also says specific Catholic prayers. So there's like a little bit of a rhythm, kind of. I think that might be what church teaching means to this person.
2: To so this person, yeah. Which, yeah, I just, I'm just so uninterested in this. Is, this is the average American Catholic woman, but I'm just really uninterested in their opinion about the church because they're not even really going to church. So, like, why is this data being collected? Because I could have told you that that was the average American Catholic. I mean, I don't know. I guess maybe I'm like skeptical of what the purpose of the survey is, in general, and sort of its origins and America Magazine and what their agenda is. We can get into that.
1: Well, let's let's do that now. We're almost at an hour, so let's um, let's switch gears into the America um, write-up of the survey. Uh, what's interesting to me about that is that. Um, America Magazine is one of the organizations that commissions the survey, so for them to publish this rather, uh, positively connoted write-up in their magazine seems not quite a journalism, uh, journalistic, uh, conflict of interest to me, but it's not not one either, um, is, is how I'm feeling about it, um. What did you guys think about what America concludes about the survey, and do you agree with their conclusions?
0: Well, for starters, I hadn't noticed till my second reading of this article that the people who wrote the article were also the people who authored the survey, like yes. the survey report. Yes. Um, which I mean, you know, okay, that means it's coming straight from the horse's mouth. I mean, to me, it, I, and I mean, maybe I was missing some nuance. To me, it felt fairly fairly dry this is what people said um but i think let me find it there was one place that i felt like they were they were not just straight presenting the data and i'm going to try to find it you guys go ahead and see things while i try to look for it
2: um i mean i don't know i don't know what your listeners or the most people like listening to this podcast even do they know that much about america magazine
1: uh, we and, and... have cited america several times in previous episodes um we've said that it is kind of the jesuit magazine um they do some interesting cultural critiques uh we have linked to their like movie and tv reviews sometimes and talked about those um so our our listeners know that it is a jesuit publication um and that we as a podcast um respected enough to talk about it not infrequently
2: um okay that's uh i guess my perception i mean i would say like within the kind of like catholic publication world among catholics there is a perception of america as being like pretty left of center and also the Jesuits sort of also being like, I don't know any kind of traditionalist Catholics who really take America seriously. There is a perception that there's like kind of a political agenda with it, but that also is one of those things where I don't think the average Catholic probably knows one way or the other, anything about it, but that's kind of like, that's the insider baseball, very, very simplistic view of America.
1: <laughs> that makes sense. Cause I, 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 sometimes disagree with them but i agree with them more than i think i would if they were you know not more, not more, as more,
2: yeah more conservative i guess right yeah so yeah there there's a spectrum of kind of perceived political views among the major catholic online publications like most people consider the national catholic reporter to be much more left of center than the national catholic register Um, people get people feel very strongly about it like 20 people on the internet feel very strongly about it but again the average American Catholic doesn't even know what any of these
1: things are Katie did you find the thing you're looking for
0: I did um, I just found it. So, and it was really just a place where I felt like they were maybe attempting to try to steer us toward a feeling about um, the results. So it's pretty far down, probably halfway down. And it's when they're talking about this answer to the question about female deacons. And it says the oldest and youngest Catholic women are less likely than those of the Vatican II and post-Vatican II generations to respond yes to the question about female deacons. There's not much difference in their r- proportions responding no across generations. Note Vatican II generation women would have been coming of age in the church when the permanent diaconate was restored. They may be more familiar with the role of deacons than women of other generations. That's kind of a parenthetical note, and the same note is in the study. And when I read that, both times I read it, I thought, "Well, hold on. So are you?" Because to me, it seemed an attempt to suggest that um, to, to to assign value a little bit. Like, well, see, these Vatican II women, they are more likely to say yes to women deacons, and look, they they probably know more about it too. Than, um, than women of these other generations. And maybe that's me reading too much into it, but I remember reading that note and thinking, why did you tell me this? Like, there's really no reason for you to, to make sure that I know that these women were coming of age when this was the, when the permanent diaconate was restored. So they probably know more about it. Why would you tell me that unless you were trying to, to perhaps suggest that yes is the right answer? And I, I don't know. Maybe that's reading way too much into it.
2: No, I see what you're saying. I mean, I would say considering that this survey is 50% people who go to church on Christmas and Easter, I'm going to go even further and say I'm skeptical about half these people even knowing what a deacon is. And I know it sounds like I'm really ragging on my own religion <laughs> or religious whatever denomination, but I really cannot emphasize em- enough how basically ignorant the average American Catholic is about details of the faith. And like, I really don't think the most American Catholics could even tell you what a deacon was. So for like the idea that somehow Vatican like women who came up in Vatican II have a more nuanced opinion about women entering the permanent diaconate. Is frankly absurd to me.
1: What I thought was most interesting about that is there are so many things that they don't even bother to define. That, like, including that parenthetical, like, that's the thing you choose to define more? You could have said what sexism is. (laughs) Exactly.
2: That's so true. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, the choice to ask about women deacons was, like... If I were coming up with a survey about issues in the church, like that would be so low on my list of things to have a whole section about. It's just, it's very, that is kind of, it feels to me like that's very insider baseball. Like there's only a small portion of the women surveyed who even knew that that was probably a question.
0: Well, and the choice to make that a very centerpiece question is also interesting given... I mean, you know, given that 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 they knew how broad their sample was. So, it, you know, yeah, that's also uh, an interesting point that that hadn't occurred to me. Um, one thing that I was thinking when I was reading all of this, um, and I think I thought it even more coolly when I was reading the article, because the article kind of summed it all up, right, in a way that's a little bit shorter, is um, how much of what I was reading about this you know, huge broad group of Catholics that, as you say, most aren't even attending mass. How similar, though? It how similar it felt to me to things you read about um, Americans who self-identify as, like, quote, Protestant Christian, like mm. in some way, shape, or form. I right? agree. So that in those in those samples you're also getting the Christmas and Easter people and people who never go to church but still say that they're Christian. And what I noticed about this the Catholic women's survey and things I've read about, you know, self-identified Protestant Christians in America is that people seemed really into the stuff that makes them feel good like helping the poor and taking communion and not so into stuff that's hard, like going yeah. to confession or like parish service. And Protestants are the same way. You see the same exact thing in the evangelical Protestant church. You know, you've got people you, you, in every church, you, and we have them in our church, every church you've got your people who show up on Sunday, listen to the sermon, go, that was a beautiful song, and then they leave and they don't think about it again until they come back in like a month or whenever they come back, you know, for somebody's wedding. I don't know.
2: Right. That's kind of Christianity as that's just like one of the hallmarks of American life and how we view spirituality. It's all about moral therapeutic
1: deism. Yes.
0: Yes, Yes. Yes. exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's very, I didn't invent that term, by the way, we didn't, we didn't, (laughs) we didn't think you did, but we
2: were were, in support of it. I mean, it's funny because I always tell people, people say like, oh, you can't bring people back to the church with dogma. But I would say, well, that's kind of how I came back to it. That's what I was looking for. I was looking for the concrete, and I'm actually very attracted to – this is probably – this is where I come across as legalistic. I'm very attracted to the the law and truth, which is why I like the, I like the Dominicans, the order of preachers, because that's their charism. That's their particular gift. But, yeah, so in general, I would see say this is very much like an American thing of we just want to – it's like the Oprah spirituality. It's just all about making yourself feel good.
1: Okay, yeah, so I, I we've, uh, we've gone on quite a long time. Uh, so I think it's, it's probably time to transition to our final segment, our passing on segment, where we give recommendations of things we'd like you to read or watch or listen to. Uh, Isabel as our guest uh, we'll let you go first. What recommendation do you have for us today? Uh, are these things that
2: are specifically relevant to this topic? Not necessarily, no. Uh,
1: if you want, but uh, if if not, uh, just recommend something you'd like the listeners to check out. Mine's oh, okay. not,
2: so don't worry. Okay, okay good. Because I was like, oh man, I didn't do research on this. Um, okay, well, um, if... Uh, I'm sure there are Catholics listening, but I'm also sure that there are many people who aren't. So if you are looking for, um, I guess, a good podcast, a Catholic podcast, um, I like the Catholic Stuff You Should Know podcast, which is um, hosted by several young priests. I think they're all under the age of 40. They're millennial priests who are from the Diocese of Denver. Um, it's just a good primer. like they do topics you know, on whatever the Catholic church's teachings and, um, their lives. So it's, it's very, there's a casual people joke who listen to it that they have way too much banter at the beginning, um, cause they're all friends, but, uh, Catholic stuff you should know if you're looking for a good ca- uh, podcast about Catholic church's teaching on XYZ and, um, for fun, non-religious podcast um this is one i just discovered it's brand new it's called everything is alive and it is a sort of dry I love everything
1: is alive yay
2: <laughs> it is a dry uh semi-ironic npr style interview show where the host interviews inanimate objects um
1: <laughs> it's really funny i, I haven't heard only... of
0: this it sounds great yeah, the, there's only
1: th- yeah, the there's company only that episodes. I said my company just merged with, PRX. Everything is Alive is a PRX production. So, okay. uh, yay, yay yeah. for that. Yeah,
2: so uh, Everything is Alive. It's a new podcast discovery. Um, I listened to the episode where they interviewed a generic can of cola. I listened to it twice, I thought it was that funny. <laughs> Okay, those are my recommendations.
1: We're, uh, we're currently pitching um, that the host of Everything is Alive interview the uh, PRI service elevator. And um, a- after the merger, somebody tweeted that at Ian, the host, uh, and he said, I bet his life has a lot of ups and downs.
0: Uh. <laughs> but um, ching.
1: All right. Uh, Katie, what do you have for us?
0: So um, I I also didn't have anything related to our specific topic tonight, but what I am recommending tonight is an article that I found really interesting from August 16th. It's Christianity Today, and it's called Christians to Science, colon, leave animals the way God designed them, except mosquitoes. Um, And the the, the headline sounds jokey, but it was actually incredibly interesting, and it was all about this Pew uh, research survey they did where they were asking um, American kind of, I think, I don't know if they, I don't know if it was just Protestant Christians, but they were asking American Christians about what's okay and not okay when it comes to genetically modifying animals. And um, so they talked about all different types of, um, different types of animal, different types of reasons um, for why you would morph the genetic code of an animal from like mosquitoes to prevent the spread of disease, which everybody was all about, all the way to things like messing around with the genes of aquarium fish to make them glow in the dark which what nobody lives, liked, nobody yeah. liked that idea. So like um, Jurassic Park stuff. No No, yes. that's like Jurassic Park stuff. <laughs> yes. And it was, it was very fascinating um, just to see the differences. Um, and anyway, so, so yeah, I, it, it, I thought it was really interesting. It's a pretty quick read. And if you're interested in science or genetic engineering or any of that stuff, I thought it was pretty cool. So that's, um, that's the article Christians to science leave animals, the way God designed them, except mosquitoes. And that was written by a woman uh, called Rebecca Randall.
1: Just because you can doesn't mean you should. (laughs) Thanks, Katie. Uh,
0: Because life
1: finds a way, right? It's true.
2: According to Dr. Ian Malcolm, yes.
1: (laughs) Well, everybody should just listen to everything that Jeff Goldblum (laughs) says forever. And that's my opinion. Uh, Okay. Um, My recommendation is related to the topic. um, And it's. One of the resources that our listener, Kay, who wrote in about this, um, recommended that we listen to about the survey. It's an episode of the Jesuitical podcast, uh, subtitle, A Podcast for Young Catholics, uh, did on this survey. It's episode 45 of their show called What Do Catholic Women Want? Um, And some of them, maybe all of them, are employed, employed by America Magazine, so... I guess, asterisk there. Uh, But I found their conversation really interesting. Um, They have a really good rapport. They're fun. They had good questions about the survey and sort of their place in it. Uh, Also, they apparently make a signature cocktail every episode, so that's cool, and we should start doing that. Uh, That sounds great. Yeah, let's do that. That does sound good. Um, They also talk to Carrie Weber, the executive editor of America, um, about the survey. She has some interesting things to say. So that's my recommendation, the episode of the Jesuitical podcast about this Catholic women's survey. And that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to say hello, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at com. You can also find us on our Facebook page, and check out the show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog. That's at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press liaison, and Ellen Peterson is our intern. Thanks very much to Isabel Ayer for guesting with us today, and for Isabel and for Katie Grubbs, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when we will discuss a biography of an as-yet-undecided woman in Christian feminist history. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.